0: Good morning again, Mill City. Good <laughs> if you can grab a seat and we'll get move on to the next part of our service, the part that I'm most excited about. Woo! Woo. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys are here. If you haven't met me before, my name is Ann. I'm the family life pastor here at Mill City. Woo. And I have the privilege of wrapping up the sermon series that we've been a part of or been doing called um, Trust Issues. So I'm going to try try to tie together the sermons that you've been um, hearing over the past couple of months and give you a chance to respond. In children's ministry, it's really important whenever we teach a story about God to our kids that they have a chance to respond immediately so that whatever they learned that morning sinks in. And so as we wrap up today's sermon series, I'm going to give you a chance today to respond so you can take a nugget from today's sermon or from anything throughout this sermon series to apply to your life. Let me review some of what we've covered in this sermon series. We've asked questions like, why can God be trusted if there is so much brokenness in this world? Sorry, I'm totally distracted by the speakers. Oh, that's better. Okay. Why would God be trusted if the church, which was his idea, filled with so much hypocrisy? Why should God be trusted if the leaders that he appointed to lead us proved to be arrogant or self-seeking or greedy? Why should we trust God if the families that he placed us in are the ones that are closest to us and able to hurt us the most deeply. Why should we trust God in a broken, broken world? We're going to talk today about some things that might trigger a little bit of anxiety or emotion inside of you. And with kids, whenever we're going to talk about something heavy, I like to do what we call a prayer of release. I think JD did this with you last week. It looks like we're swapping microphones. Is this better? Hello! Can you hear me now? Okay, this is better. So I'm just going to take this off. Oh, okay. If you're listening on podcast, I just took my microphone off. Okay. (sighs) Okay, so let's have a prayer of release. So you can put your hands out in front of you if you feel so inclined. And as I pray, I want you to give to God anything you brought with you today that's distracting you or anything going on inside of you that might get in the way of what he wants to say to you today. And release that to God as we're praying and ask him to speak to you today. So let's pray. God, I release to you today all the distractions that are going on right now. I release to you today my sadness as I talk to you about my dad I release to you today my concern about what's going on in all the children's classrooms right now. I release all of that today, and I ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. It's easy to get confused about who God is when we have experienced a lot of brokenness in our lives. That certainly has been the case in my own story, and yet throughout my entire childhood and adulthood thus far, God has repeatedly and graciously shown me who he is and why he can be trusted. And I have had to over and over again choose to trust God, because trust is a choice, and I can tell you today That trusting God has been the only reason that I have learned to thrive in the midst of brokenness. Let me unpack that for you a little bit um, as I tell you some stories from my own life. First, I want to show you a picture. This is a picture of my parents. Aren't we just cute? Can you see the resemblance between me and my mom? There's my dad. This picture was taken my first year of seminary, and um, obviously it was Christmas time, and we have big smiles on our faces. It looks like we're an all-American happy family, right? But what people don't know is that we always smiled and looked that happy when we were at church, but as soon as we got in the car, those smiles turned off because we were... Not that happy most of the time. I had a really strained relationship with my dad for most of my life. And not until a few years after this picture was taken did God reconcile me and my dad. So about four years later, after this picture, God did some things to restore my relationship to my dad, and I'm really happy to tell you that the last three years before my dad passed away, I was proudly a daddy's girl. And God brought me close to my dad. But that didn't happen until I was 26. My dad was a Baptist pastor in town. Next picture. Here's my super awkward family. Back in the early 90s, And every Sunday and every Wednesday and a whole lot of days in between, my dad would bring my family to church and he would get up in the pulpit and he would preach these eloquent truths about God. He would tell about the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and and he would preach the gospel. And he was this eloquent, kind-hearted pastor to the community. Everywhere we went in the various towns that we lived, he was held in high esteem as the reverend, Pastor Mickelson. Every week, when we would get home from church, I experienced a side of the reverend that wasn't so reverent. My dad had a really violent temper, and he managed to control it when he was in public. But when, when we got home, he would take out his anger on me, tiny little long-haired Ann, And he'd grab me by the shoulders, and he'd push me into the corner, and he'd butt me in the head, and he'd say, "Anne," And he'd proceed to yell at me over, I don't even remember what. He terrified me. But because he was the pastor in town, and because we didn't want to tarnish his reputation, my parents taught me really young in life that we don't talk about that side of our family to other people. And so no matter what was going on in my home, I was all smiles out in public. Thankfully, God eventually healed those wounds, so now when I'm all smiles, it's because God's healed my wounds, but at the time, my smile was my way of covering my pain. Well, when I got to second grade, that abuse that I was experiencing was starting to become evident to the people around me, and my second grade teacher at parent-teacher conferences sat down with my parents, and she said, Pastor Jim your daughter is showing signs of being abused. Could that be true? And my dad, I don't know exactly what he said because I wasn't there, but I hear this story years later that he was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, she's fine. And my teacher said, I have every reason to call the social worker and remove Anne and put her in foster care. But because you're the Baptist minister in town... I would hate to tarnish your reputation as the reverend, so I'm not going to do that. I just need you to promise that you're going to stop abusing your daughter. Now, what person in their right mind would say, I'm going to keep abusing my daughter? But my dad said to the teacher, okay, yep, I'll change, whatever he said. I really wish I could tell you today that that was when God reconciled my relationship with my dad. But unfortunately, that was only the beginning of the story. What I can tell you that God did in second grade was that God instilled in me a trust in him. And this is how he did it. As a second grader, I got my first Bible from my Sunday school teacher, and I had just learned how to read pretty well in school, right? Second grade, you're getting the reading thing down pretty good. So I would take my Bible, and every time I felt scared or every time I was bored or whatever, I was just a little future seminary student, (laughs) and I would take my dog because he was the only one who would listen to me, and I would sit him down, and I would read the Bible to my dog every night. His name was Kirby Puckett Mickelson. You can guess when we got him. He heard a lot of scripture. He heard the gospel over and over and over. Well, as a second grader, like I said, I was reading the Bible. I was reading the book of James, which I later found out was my dad's favorite book of the Bible because his name was James. And this is what I read. As soon as I read this to my little dog, Kirby, I screamed out loud, okay? It says this. I think it's on the screen behind me. James 1, and 27, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Why do you think I loved that verse so much? I called my mom over to me. I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm sitting in the living room. call my mom over. I'm like, Mom, you got to hear this. And I read this to her, and I say, if someone can't keep a tight rein on their tongue, their religion is worthless. That means dad's religion is worthless. My mom, God bless her. I'm sure she didn't know what to say, said to me, and please never tell your father that you think that because you can only imagine his reaction to that. That would be a slap in a pastor's face. But in that moment, that is the first milestone in my journey of trusting Jesus because God showed me that what God considers to be good and to be a valuable religion. His definition of Christianity looks a whole lot different than a lot of the nonsense we see in church leadership today. If you've ever seen hypocrisy in church leadership or hypocrisy amongst Christians that you know and it just turns your stomach, guess what? It turns the stomach of God too. He says that religion where we just talk about taking care of our neighbors but not actually do it Is worthless he says if we're just acting like everyone else in this world how are we set apart as Christ followers the religion that God sees as valuable and good is a religion where you actually put your money where your mouth is so to speak and you actually live out your faith like Jesus as a second grader I said to Jesus that is what I want That's the Christianity that I desire. That's the church that I want to be a part of. That's the religion I'm going to claim as my own. God is not like those hypocritical church leaders that we see in our culture. God is not a hypocrite. He is consistent. He is consistently good. And it is my choice... I can either take out my church issues on him, or I can say, you must be as upset with the church as I am, God. And I can trust God in spite of the church issues that I might have. A few weeks ago, the sermon at Mill City, I think Mike Binder was preaching, was about church issues. From what I've heard, it was one of the more popular sermons in our sermon series. We all have church issues, and we have the opportunity, according to James chapter 1, to say we can write off the church as worthless, or we can say I'm going to be a part of God's church, which is incredible. So fast forward to when I was in middle school. (laughs) It's very possible Stephanie has shown you this picture because I'm pretty sure this is Stephanie's favorite picture of me. It's like what pops up on her phone when I call her. This is 13 year old Anne in middle school. Let me talk to the middle schoolers for a moment. I love middle schoolers. Woo, yeah, the mill. I'm going to tell you something that I wish someone would have told me when I was in middle school. In middle school that's when you start asking bigger questions than you've asked before you start questioning your faith you start questioning the church you start questioning your parents even if they don't want you to you start questioning yourself you start questioning politics and creation and so many other things let me tell you something there is no question too big for God He's not bothered by your questions. He doesn't take it personally if you question him. He sees that as you trying to get to know him. So never shy away from questions or let your questions affect your trust in God. You can trust God and have a whole slew of questions because raise your hand, Mill City, if that's where you're at. A lot of us, okay, hold on, I can't see any of you. A lot of us have questions and we trust God and that's not a contradiction So you can ask questions, middle schoolers. And God will love that. As a middle schooler, I started asking questions of God that I had not yet asked. I started noticing with my friends that other people's dads didn't treat them the way my dad treated me. That's not fair. Other girls would, like, hug their dads. Or other girls would, like, call their dad and not have to worry about what mood he was in. Other girls would like go on father-daughter dances and dates with their dad, are you kidding me? In middle school, I realized that and I reached a level of disappointment and hopelessness that I had never experienced before. And I said to God, "You created the family. You created my dad. It was your idea to put me in this family. I don't know if I trust your judgment." because if you gave me this much pain in my family, I don't think I like the way you make decisions, God. But because I had committed my life to Jesus when I was in second grade, and I promised him that I would follow him all the days of my life, I still read scripture I still worshiped him to the best of my ability. And I still sat in the tension of that distrust. And like usual, God showed himself to me through scripture. No matter how big your questions are, if you ever turn away from scripture, you're missing out on one of the most easy ways for God to speak to you. I was reading in the book of Psalms, and I got to Psalm 27, which to this day is still my favorite psalm of the whole Bible. And I got to Psalm 27, verse 10, and this is what it says. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Though my father and mother forsake me, the word forsake means to disappoint or to let down or to turn your back on Receive, when the Lord receives you, I love this, especially since I love kids so much. The word receive in Hebrew means to draw to one's self. So when it says you're going to be forsaken by all these people, including your parents, the Lord wants to draw you to Himself because, unlike all the people in our lives, God will not forsake us. He's going to do the opposite of turning his back on us. He's going to draw us to himself. The visual in my mind when I think of this is um, when a kid gets out of a swimming pool and is dripping wet, and you know how little kids get really cold when they're wet and their lips turn blue and they're just like shivering, and their parent or babysitter or whatever will take a big beach towel and wrap them up and warm them up in a very non-creepy way. I realize that sounds kind of weird, but You know what I mean. I mean, have you ever had anyone do that when you were a kid? Like, just wrap you up and keep you warm? When the Lord draws us to himself, he's saying, I am safe. I am where you won't be disappointed. I am the place where you can relax. Because I'm not going to hurt you, even if it feels that way. So, as a middle schooler, another milestone in my walk with God, God had used James 1 to help me through my church issues and my leadership issues, and God used Psalm 27 to help me through my family issues. And yet again, I was reminded that trust is a choice. It was up to me if I was going to trust God. God is not emotionally unstable. He is not fickle. He does not punish out of anger. He is not abusive or neglectful. God is different than that. God is consistent. His love is unconditional. He keeps all of his promises. He never turns his back on me or throws me under the bus. He is everything I want, a father to be, a mother to be. He is the perfect parent. God is trustworthy, and as a middle schooler, despite my disappointment and my loneliness and my fear, I chose to trust God, and God preserved that trust through a really rocky season of my life. There's one last scripture I want to share with you, and then we'll wrap things up this morning, and this is from Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son, if you've heard that story before. In fact, the Mighty Miller kids are learning that story at the same time as us. So if you have kids in Mighty Mills, you can compare notes because I wrote their lesson too. (laughs) It's very similar to this. I'm going to just read this scripture to you. It's going to be uh, story time with Anne, And you can just sit back and listen. And I'm guessing you might have heard this story before. So don't just, like, let your mind wander, but ask God to tell you something new this morning through this story because he has something to say to you. This is Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued his story. He said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Not something a Jewish boy would want to do, or any of us for that matter. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home who has squandered your property with prostitutes, you kill a fattened calf for him? My son, the father, said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours, who was dead, is alive again, and he was lost, but he is now found. The part of this story that I think is very interesting is that when Jesus was telling this story to first-century Jews, religious leaders and non-religious people alike, their image of a father looked very different than what Jesus told about in this story. Because in first-century Judaism, the father was the patriarch, the head of the family. And no father would sell his estate when he still had plenty of life ahead of him. Inheritance in that day wasn't dollar bills like today. It was land and animals and your house and your belongings. So if the son wanted his father's um, estate, his dad had to literally get rid of some of his livelihood to give to his kid. No father would do that. The father would say, you disrespectful, ungrateful, little fill in the blank." No father would be running after his ungrateful, disrespectful son. Fathers in that culture did not run. My guess is they weren't exactly in shape. I don't know. But they didn't run because they had hired hands to do their running. You read about that in other stories where a father will send someone to go do an errand or send someone to send a message. Fathers did not run in public. So when the father in the story gives generously to an ungrateful son, he lets the son go, he runs after the son when he comes home, and he celebrates him, that was shocking to the listeners. Jesus was really making a point. God the father was entirely different than what they assumed him to be. It's a... um, I love how Chip Ingram, who is one of my favorite preachers, he describes it like this. I'm just going to read to you what he wrote. It's as if God the Father is saying, if you need a season to reject me, to wish that I was dead and not have me in your life, to take advantage of my generosity and my provisions in your life, and you want to do something else, guess what? I'm going to let you do that, and I still love you. I don't want the pain that you're going to experience for you, but I still love you. God the Father is so different than we often make him out to be. Jesus was telling his listeners, and he's telling us here today, loud and clear, that God is different. God isn't a God who is withdrawn from us. God is actively engaged with us, if only we'll choose to see him. God is not a God who withholds his generosity from us. God is a God who gives generously to us everything we need and more. God is not someone who sits back and judges sinners. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He instead is pursuing those who've turned their backs on him and celebrating when good things are going on in our lives. It's easy to get confused about who God is when we're surrounded by brokenness. Trusting God is a choice, and it can be difficult to trust him when we assume that he is someone that he's actually not. If we blame him for the brokenness, all of a sudden our image of God gets warped. But God isn't like that. He's different. He is holy. We sing in our songs all the time that God is holy, That means he's set apart and he's different. I want to give you a chance to respond to today's message and to the sermon series that we've been doing in general. In your blue program, there's a little white piece of paper that looks like this, and it says, God isn't blank, God is blank. We do this in Mighty Mills often when we say to the kids, what have we learned about God today? For you, it's not just today. I'm asking you to think about this entire sermon series. What is something you've learned about God that you can apply to your life immediately? I've given you some examples how I would fill it in. God is not an abusive father. He is the perfect parent. God is not going to reject me. God will always welcome me. God isn't judgmental. God is forgiving. God isn't conditional. He is unconditional. You're going to have a couple minutes here to fill in these blanks, and you're not going to do anything with this right now. You're not going to bring it up or anything. This is for you to keep. You can tuck it in your Bible, put it on your fridge, whatever. You're going to have a few minutes to think about this. God is not blank. God is something else. And then we're going to have a time of communion. So those who are serving communion can come forward. The second Sunday of every month at Mill City, we share in communion together, which is a chance for us to remember and celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I like to think about it like this. All the brokenness in the world are like the thorns of a rose. The thorns are prickly, and you have to get past the thorns to get to the rose. What did Jesus wear on his crown as he was crucified? A crown, or wear on his head. A crown of thorns. He took the thorns of our life, which in my mind can represent the brokenness of the world, and he died to do away with the brokenness. He died to give us a different type of life, one that isn't defined by brokenness, but that's defined by trust. And so as you take a few minutes to fill out this piece of paper, and then when you're ready, you can come forward to have communion. It's gluten-free bread and grape juice. All we ask is that you consider Jesus to be the leader and the Savior of your life, and you're welcome to participate in communion. And then we'll worship together as a family of God.